As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. And welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me this evening to discuss the USA's one-to-one draw on the road at Jamaica in World Cup qualifying is a man who has seen enough of my face tonight, so we're going with audio only for this segment. It's Joe Lowry. Joe, how have things been since last we spoke many, many seconds ago? Oh, it was so long ago, Taylor. Just, you know, so many, so many seconds, as you're saying, since we did the Bleacher Report post-game show it was a blast doing that, and I'd never get tired of looking at your face, Taylor. The beard is immaculate. You said the head was freshly shaved. What more could I or, or the people ask for, really? Probably a win. A win and woke up qualifying. Uh, yeah, that would be <laughs> That'd be the one. But no, I really enjoy it because it's nice to chat with you. It's nice to kind of get some ideas going and get some thoughts out there. Uh, it sort of functions as our quick take. Uh, the the post game show, the preview show, also works really well for giving me things to pay attention to. I'm glad we did some very specific predictions. Uh, but the biggest thing for me is that because it's sort of bookended, I am locked in on the game in a way that I sometimes am not. There's no Twitter. There's no phone. There's no other things going on. I am totally focused on the game because I know we got to talk about it at the end. And I've got to be able to say things that actually happened as opposed to things that felt like they happened, even if they didn't. <laughs> Joe, what about you? Does it change doing the pregame postgame? Does it change the way you watch or is it pretty much consistent for you? Uh, it definitely forces me to be a little bit more focused. I'm less inclined to just say, oh, I'll catch that on the rewatch. Yeah, like right? I'll go back yeah. through and <laughs> key in on Mikel Antonio's work and, and go back through and try quick to find some of his 1v1s against Walker Zimmerman. That's just one of, of a bunch of examples, right? So it, it forces me in a good way to to be extra dialed in. It sounds like the same for you. And then to be ready with some talking points and some thoughts and then some things that I do want to go back through and hit on on the rewatch. So yeah, I've had a total blast doing those. And thank you to everybody who's watched who's tuned yeah. in um I, I we're hoping to to do more of those down the line but it was it was a really fun introduction to that space i think it was indeed and i really do hope we get to do more because i like seeing your face as well joe it's always pleasant uh, we gotta get you some more <laughs> soccer stuff in the background i appreciate right. your few That's additions right. we can just keep adding to every single broadcast the other reason why i ask you if you find yourself watching more closely uh is because when i went back and did my rewatch of this game because we're now going to do our in-depth review as opposed to our quick take review i'm not sure it required a ton more analysis and i can't tell if that's because i paid a lot more attention in the beginning or in the, like the opening segment basically um or if because this game sort of went the way it did and there's not a whole bunch to unpack from it. It's a great way to begin a podcast. So, Joe, basically, I had an idea of the story of this game when we did the post-game show. I rewatched. I saw some new stuff, but a lot of what I thought was kind of the story of the game maintain or continues to be the story of the game. What about you? Was your rewatch different? 
Uh, it was a little bit different, All but right. generally speaking, Taylor, the, the narrative that we'd kind of settled on where the U.S. come out and, and Jamaica tries to hit early, the U.S. absorb that, then they start controlling the ball, counterpressing. Tim Weah gets that beautiful goal in the 11th minute from some good team play around him as well. The U.S. are, are, are kind of flying. They're not really flying, but maybe they're parasailing sort of <laughs> a little bit above the ground. They're, they're playing well enough at that point. And then Jamaica come back and Mikel Antonio hits the longest goal in, in the Ocho so far, 34 yards out. That's almost two entire boxes stacked, you know, one outside of the other. That's how far away that shot was. Mikel Antonio hits that shot, and then the U.S. don't quite react to being punched in the mouth that way. It's 1-1 at this point, and and it will stay 1-1 for the duration of the game. But the U.S. struggle to get back into it. They're not creating a ton of chances. There's a few nice moments here and there. But really, for the rest of the game, they don't threaten a whole lot. And it's Jamaica who has the, the one or two really dangerous moments. So, Taylor, generally speaking, for the narrative, at least, of this game, some, some more stuff stood out to me on the analysis side. But, but by and large, yeah, the, the structure and the format of this game felt pretty clear from, from just watch number one. So I want to talk about the structure and the format, the lineups, the tactics, all that good stuff. First, one more quick question for you, Joe. My specific prediction or one of my specific predictions was that the U.S. would attempt four or more shots from distance, basically from outside the box. Do you feel like there's a chance that Mikel Antonio heard that prediction and wanted to go for like (laughs) the cumulative distance himself? Is that what happened? I feel like that's what had to happen. Yeah, so so Mikhail, I have a good authority, Taylor, mm-hmm. that Mikel Antonio was watching our Bleacher Report pregame show totally from sense. Jamaica, from that stadium, actually. Obviously. And then he heard that, took some sort of offense to it, was sad we didn't talk about him more, and then just decided to to do the U.S. from 34 <laughs> yards out. So, yeah, I, I think you're you're right there with that theory, Taylor. All right, well, then I apologize to U.S. fans for incurring the wrath <laughs> of Mikel Antonio. Uh, Joe, let's talk about the U.S. lineup to start. Uh, there were 11 players, shock of all shocks, and, I, and as we talked about in our pregame, coverage, it was the lineup that I think, I'll speak for myself, that I was most comfortable with. I wanted to see Jean-Luc Abusio start instead of maybe Kevin Acosta or Sebastian Legette, somebody like that. Uh, so it was Busio, it was Musa, it was Adams, the BAM midfield. It was Chris Richards uh, starting in place of a suspended Miles Robinson, partnering Walker Zimmerman, who has become this sort of ever-present fixture. Anthony Robinson on the left. It was DeAndre Yedlin again on the right. It was the same front three. It was Zach Steffen in goal. Uh, it, it felt like it made a lot of sense to kind of continue the progress that had been made in the Mexico game and then sort of add to it, adjust some things, see how we did. So I was in favor of that lineup. Joe, were you on the same page? Yeah, 100%. I had no issues with this lineup. This is exactly what I wanted to see. We talked about it, Berhalter, in his pre-match press conference yesterday as we're recording Tuesday night. So the press conference was on Monday. He mentioned specifically that Stefan Wood starts. So that was not a surprise. He talked about how it was between Richards and McKenzie to start next to Walker Zimmerman. He didn't actually name check Zimmerman, but we could infer that from the convo. He mentioned Richards and McKenzie fighting for that center back spot. And then he talked about either Busio, Acosta, or Leggett starting as the, the other eight in place of Weston McKinney. And I wanted to see Busio in that spot because Acosta and Legit haven't been all that good for the national team recently. And I wanted to see Richards as the other center back next to Zimmerman because I just think Richards is a better player than Mark McKenzie. And they both have a little bit of experience now under Berhalter. McKenzie has more. But Richards showed some nice things against Costa Rica, and I was eager to see him get another shot. And we saw all of that, right? Christian Pulisic was primed to come off the bench, and that's what happened in the second half. All of the pieces in terms of the lineup fit really well together after that Mexico game. And and there was a belief, at least in my mind, and it seems like for other folks as well, that this group was good enough to get the job done. And I guess depending on how you define the job, they kind of got it done. One point on the road in CONCACAF is not the worst thing, and Baralder talked about that after the game. But but the performance, Taylor, we we can both agree, left a little bit to be desired. Yes, it absolutely did. And in some ways, I think Jamaica would be the team that is most disappointed by this result. They have some good chances in the second half, a goal chalked off, another one that they should have definitely scored with an assist from Anthony Robinson, but Bobby Reed did not put it on frame. And it could have been 2-1, it could have been 3-1. So the United States, I think, relatively fortunate to get that draw and never really, to my mind, felt like they were going to kind of pull something back. It didn't feel like in that second half we saw that same spark that we did against Mexico. It felt like sort of more of the same, uh, an individuality to the performance, some good combinations here and there. But for the most part, I didn't see big adjustments from one half to the next that made me think things are going to be different. The U.S. is going to find a way to get two, three, four goals in the second half. Um, So, Joe, that makes me wonder, though, from the outset – What did you hope to see from the United States in those opening 15 minutes? We talked about this in the pregame show. 
but I'm not sure you, I talked for a while, basically. I'm not sure you were able to kind of articulate the things that you wanted to see. And I think neither one of us could have expected that it would be the exact same approach as against Mexico because Jamaica aren't Mexico. But what were the things you had hoped we might see in those first 15 minutes or so? Well, and for listeners, part of the reason I didn't, it, it, well, the reason that I didn't get to articulate some of those things wasn't because Taylor was hogging the mic. It was because my internet <laughs> dropped. So, um, not things to put, two not, things, Joe. not things to paint you things. in a bad light there, Taylor. As far as what I wanted to see in this game, there was a chance I felt for the U.S. to continue momentum from Dos Acero, right? It's, it's a pretty logical thread to draw from that incredible win on Friday night, the, the best performance we've seen in the last two years now, since, since Brother took over almost three years ago now. They played really well, and, and a lot of the basis for that win was was centered on the midfield, was centered on MMA, McKenney, Musa, Adams. No Weston McKenney in this game. That's a big loss, and, and we saw that play out on the field. But still, even with Gianluca Busio in that group, you say, okay, we can we can dominate this midfield. We can cut off service to Mikel Antonio with, with Walker Zimmerman and Chris Richards in the back. I wanted to see them really really suffocate Jamaica's attacking play and control the ball in midfield, drive it forward quickly, and then play quick combinations and, and create chances through possession and counterpressing. And we saw glimpses of that. The goal was the best example. It was the best passage of play in my mind from the U.S. in this game. And so part of my wish was there. Part of my wish was fulfilled in the, in the first 15, 20 minutes of this game. The problem was it wasn't consistent enough, and, and the cracks started to show pretty early on in terms of the U.S.'s possession setup. So... I think part of that was because the United States maybe lacking Weston McKinney and so that veteran presence and also that physicality in the midfield. They had to kind of figure some things out as they went, but also a lot of that had to do with what Jamaica was doing. Joe, you spotted a couple things when we talked at halftime, but I want to throw to you to give a broader overview of Jamaica's lineup, their tactics, what they were sort of setting out to do or how they were setting out to do it. Sure. Yeah. So I saw Jamaica. It was really fluid, Taylor. Maybe you picked yes, up on was. this too. I had a hard time pinning yep. down a consistent formation. At times it was a 4-4-2, a 4-4-1-1, a 4-3-3. Either way, in, in Bruce Arena would be proud of me. The formation doesn't necessarily matter a whole lot here. But some of the principles that Jamaica was using and Theodore Whitmore was using in this game, I think, are a little bit more important. Mikel Antonio was the player for Jamaica. He came off the bench against El Salvador and scored a goal and a 1-1 draw for Jamaica before this game. And he starts this one, and almost from the jump, man, you could tell Jamaica are are going to play through him. The first minute of this game, throw in on the right side for Jamaica. They're trying to find Mikel Antonio down the line. Minutes later, you couldn't, you almost couldn't go five minutes, Taylor, in this game without Jamaica trying to play a ball up to Mikel Antonio. He was the sun, and every other player in the outfield for Jamaica were various planets circulating around the sun, right? So he was a huge fixture of this group up top. And then at times, Lamar Walker would step forward out of central midfield to, to partner him. Speedy Williams and Javon Watson were in midfield as well. Leon Bailey on the left at times, and they switched sides in the, in the second half. Bobby Reed on the wing uh, in that space too. And so those players are, are dangerous, but Mikel Antonio was the guy in this group in possession. Defensively though, Taylor, this is, this is the part of the game that I think is most interesting. Jamaica's defensive work and how the U.S. tried and failed, I would argue, to really break through them. There was a lot of man-oriented defending. At times, it looked like man-marking, and at times it was. Other times, it was just really strong defensive communication from Jamaica to pass the U.S.'s central midfielders and, and wingers off from player to player to really constrict that space. Jamaica was almost everywhere. Tyler Adams or, or Yunus Musa or Gianluca Busio went, and, and the same goes for Brendan Aronson and Tim Weah at times. They were really strong and, and compact at times, not all the time, but in moments in midfield, and the U.S. had a lot of trouble I thought, trying to play through Jamaica in this game. So a couple of things there. Let's go back to Antonio for a moment. I thought we would see Shamar Nicholson. That's what we saw against El Salvador. I thought he would be the sort of target striker, knocking it down or playing it into the space for Mikel Antonio or for maybe Leon Bailey. It was Leon Bailey against El Salvador. So when I saw the initial formation, I thought it was a 4-4-2 with it being Bailey and Antonio. I thought, oh, okay, they're going to go like long and direct and they're just going to rely on those two to be very, very quick. I, maybe because we haven't talked enough about West Ham, which many people have pointed out, I did not realize how strong Antonio is or how yeah. good he is in those 50-50s. And I assumed he needed that big target player in the form of Nicholson to do a lot of that work. So to see how often he bodied people off, and he loses a lot of aerial duels to Walker Zimmerman. We'll talk about him in a bit. But there are moments in the air where he does really well, obviously scoring the goal pretty impressive. But even other things, like in the second half, Tyler Adams 
goes in for a kind of shoulder to shoulder 50 feet. Do you remember this one? Yeah, it gets and, flattened. And Antonio controls it and shoves him out of the way at the same time, like literally stiff arms him out oh of the way gosh. and controls the ball. And it was just a moment of like, okay, we got to put two guys on him. Like there's, there's no other way we're going to do with this. And so I thought he was spectacular on the evening. We had yeah. a question about, is he the best player in CONCACAF? Yeah. You said no. I would agree. But he is way further up the rankings than I thought he was before this game. I'll say that much. I will also say, I did not expect Jamaica to be as defensively like nuanced and organized as they were. Yes. And I think maybe I went too hard into that El Salvador game because I really don't mean this to be disrespectful, but it's El Salvador. It's not the United States. And I think against a team that are perceived as maybe their equals or a little bit worse than them, I think there was a more lackadaisical nature to the way Jamaica set up to play. Whereas against the U.S., similar to the U.S. raising their game for Mexico, that man marking was a problem. And it was a problem from the jump. And I did not notice that. Joe, you spotted it. I watched it all happen in the second half. And then on the rewatch... It's 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 almost from the first minute. It is somebody in Tyler Adams' face. It's usually uh, Walker. It is somebody tracking Eunice Musa, not quite as tight as Walker was on Adams, but usually within maybe five yards, if not fewer. The one who tended to have a bit more time on the ball was Gianluca Busio, so much so that it started to occur to me that that might be a deliberate thing, that you're letting the least experienced player in the U.S. midfield have more time and have more space but then you're basically forcing the United States to rely on that 18-year-old, 18, 19, whatever he is, he's a teenager, uh, to unlock the defense, to pick passes, to make things happen. And Busio tried, don't get me wrong, but I think it basically cut out two-thirds of that midfield because there was just constant pressure. Adams never is really able to find a few yards to turn. The one time he maybe is, I would argue, is when the United States scores. And so I think... If you give him that open space the way I thought Jamaica might, if Jamaica had stayed spread or kind of stayed in two banks of four, but they weren't tight together, I thought there'd be a lot more opportunities. And it's a massive credit to Jamaica the way they defended that there really weren't that many opportunities for the United States throughout this game. It is. It's a credit to Jamaica. But Taylor, early on, I thought, okay, this the U.S. could actually break this game open because on that way goal, on that way a goal that we've been we've been referencing, good counter pressing from Aronson and Wea, U.S. recover possession in the final third, and then it's ping, 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 Pepe, uh, Pepe to Musa to Yedlin to Richards to Busio to Wea to Pepe back to Wea, who then breaks in the box and, and makes Bobby Reed look a little bit silly, and the U.S. are up one nothing, just the second first half goal that the United States has scored in World Cup qualifying so far. I thought, okay, this team is, is going to carry on that momentum. And you could see, Taylor, you described this so well in the, in the pregame show that we did. Jamaica's reactive defending in that moment. They could not keep up with the U.S.'s ball movement. And it was almost like each individual Jamaican player was having the realization of, oh, that guy just got beat. Now I need to step. I need to take action instead of being a bit more proactive defensively. Jamaica was slow in those moments. And I thought, okay, the U.S. is, is going to be able to leverage that, that sluggishness defensively for Jamaica. And then it just didn't happen. And part of that is on the U.S. for for not advancing the ball in the final third enough. But the other part is is on Jamaica. And, and I, I should say, rewinding quick, we should at some point later go into some more of the issues with the U.S. in possession. But to give credit to Jamaica, they only allowed 0.58 expected goals from the U.S., which I believe, according to Paul Carr, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't have the tweet up, was the second lowest total for the U.S. so far in, in World Cup qualifying. So, so they, they really stymied the U.S.'s ability to attack and to create. And a huge part of that was, was them marking the midfielders out of the game, marking Tyler Adams, marking Musa, And Musa still had an impact, but they forced Walker Zimmerman especially, Walker Zimmerman and, and Anthony Robinson, into poor long balls and those players made poor decisions and I think they struggled on the ball for as good as Walker was with the ball without the ball excuse me as good as he was defensively on Antonio really trying to make his life difficult with the ball I thought he struggled and Jamaica wisely funneled the ball into those players and allowed them to make mistakes and, and hurt the U.S.'s ability to progress the ball all on their own so credit to Theodore Whitmore for going back to some of that same man-oriented defending that they had success with in Austin against the United States and uh, it is a little bit of an indictment on the U.S. that they struggled so much to create chances again with just 0.58 expected goals. I want to talk more about how the U.S. struggled to create chances. Obviously, I want to talk about the goal first, but even before we do either of those things, I would like to take a break to hear from today's sponsors. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? 
Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. All right, Joe, we've sort of jumped around a little bit in some of the issues, some of the things the United States did well. Let's go to a happy moment. Let's talk about the U.S.'s uh, goal in this game, the opening goal of the match, uh, courtesy of Timothy Weah doing some brilliant individual things, uh, including a really nice uh, one-two with Ricardo Pepe that he then gets into the box uh, because of the return pass from Pepe. But even before that, I noticed he has like kind of a self one-two that as I believe Brown, uh, the right back for Jamaica, is trying to close Timothy Weah down because, as you said, Joe, this is the reactive defending I sort of expected. Weah has it on his left and he takes a quick touch with his left to his right and then he passes it around Brown into the feet of Pepe and then he, uh, he Weah, goes around Brown, receives the ball on the other side. He outworks uh, Bobby D. Cordova-Reed. Uh, I think he also prevents uh, Lowe from making any sort of play. And then it's just a really clever finish, an opportunistic finish, a finish born of, I think, a very confident player coming off that Mexico game. But I think there's a lot of other stuff to enjoy about this one because I alluded to it earlier or maybe even just straight up said it earlier, this is the time that Tyler Adams has a little bit of space because the U.S., I believe, had a set piece. It's partially cleared, and Adams goes to collect. And this is a key aspect of the play, is Adams gets the ball and does have Walker near him, but continues to carry the ball wide. And then it ends up going to DeAndre Yedlin, who is now in the Tyler Adams role in that sort of number six spot on the pitch, but has no one around him. And this is the key for me, because as soon as he has space in the Tyler Adams spot, DeAndre Edlin is not Tyler Adams, but he is capable of passing the ball forward. And once there's one player open, somebody has to go close him down. That opened up somebody else. That opened up somebody else. And away we go. And I think I was really heartened by this goal, not just because it is sort of something from nothing from Timothy Weah, but because going back and watching, it's not something from nothing. It's an individual moment of great skill from Wea, but it's also the U.S. recognizing an opportunity, and they had players moving. They had players running off the ball. They have players pulling other players out of position to then have other players run into that space, and it, and it was good attacking play across the board from the United States, culminating in a goal, and it did feel in that moment like, okay, here we go. The U.S. has found a way past that sort of man-marking uh, defense from Jamaica. Uh, they're going to be able to keep it going. This was on my rewatch. I was sort of like, okay, if they did it here, why can't they keep it going? And my only answer, Joe, is that they basically took their foot off the gas and they went for more of a possession-oriented, let's kind of kill the game, kill the momentum of Jamaica, not let them get any sort of control on this game. We'll counterattack them in situations when they get overextended, and we will basically dictate the entire style of play and the overall tempo of play. And Jamaica really weren't having it. That's my read on how things went after the goal. They did back off a little bit, the United States, and they, they still had some nice attacking moments. 16th minute, a good play with Yedlin and, and Pepe and Weah after Musa does some some classic Musa-ing deeper down the field, draws a foul, and then we missed the beginning part of this play because of the broadcast. Or at least I missed it. I was watching Universo, so I was watching the Spanish language broadcast. There's some other good moments here, but some of the ambition seemed to be lacking and some of the tempo seemed to be lacking, Taylor. I don't know if that's exactly what you're getting at when you say they backed off. I think there's a mental component here too. But in terms of just how the ball was moving, I think there was some of that, right? Gianluca Busio and Yunus Musa under-hitting passes to their respective fullbacks, to, to Anthony Robinson for Busio and DeAndre Yedlin for Musa, under-hitting passes to those players that slow transition attacks down. Walker Zimmerman panicking a little bit on the ball or forcing long diagonals and, and just mishitting those forced long diagonals or, or trying to play Pepe into a spot where Pepe just wasn't even close to at this point in the play. There's lots of those little moments in the first half and, and some, some in the second half as well. It went from this high of the goal and the, the real technical display of that goal 
in the individual and the team-wide moments that you just detailed. It went from that high to, okay, maybe the U.S. can get another one in the 16th minute to then just, oh, wow, this is this has gone downhill pretty quick. That's really interesting. So, Joe, let me ask you this, like, honest question. My, yeah. I think, like, maybe I, like, filled in, I'm going to go Jurassic Park here, Joe. I hope you can get this reference. <laughs> but basically, like, in the way that they have to fill in the DNA code, I feel like I saw two things, and it was like, they found their way through the man marking. They had some great individual play, but also some good team movement. They get a goal. But then from there, the United States gets sloppier. They bat, like, they're not as dominant. They're not really going at Jamaica. And the only thing that made sense to me, and this is where I'm kind of like filling in a hole that maybe I'm misrepresenting. My assumption was that we saw the United States basically back off and invite Jamaica onto them a bit more, not try to press them quite as high, but try to block off passing lanes and make Jamaica uncomfortable and make Jamaica give the ball back to the United States. And then the U.S. would slow it down. But that then meant they weren't as sort of alive to opportunities. They weren't moving the ball as quickly. So that was my sort of read on why the tempo changed. But I'm now sort of coming around to the idea that it might also have just been that after that goal, they didn't execute as well. That Maybe they were just up 1-0 and got a little bit complacent. But I agree with you that we started to see a lot of misplaced passes and more worryingly, and I know the pitch is part of this, but just miscontrolled balls, balls rolling under feet, balls bouncing up and players not really settling cleanly. And I just wonder if there was a sort of sloppiness that bred into the overall team. So would you say it's more individual errors that became a cumulative team error? Or would you say it was maybe the United States changing the approach a little bit after the goal? I think it's I think it's both an individual thing and a team thing, Taylor. There are those those specific moments that you can detail and say, okay, Zimmerman should have hit this pass or he shouldn't have hit this pass. Robinson should have done this or he should have done that. You can critique those those individual moments in a fair way. But then for me, there's also this well, really there's two other portions of it. There's the team wide aspect of them not really being able to work together as a as a unit to break through Jamaica's midfield blockages, right? Right through through the the blocks that Jamaica had put up in central midfield with that man oriented defending that we talked about. I don't think there was enough off ball movement. I don't think the the wingers for the US were moving down deep enough into midfield to pull players with them and to take advantage of the space vacated by the the sixes, the six and the eights for the US who would move a lot into the fullback spots to try and create some space in central midfield. I don't think the US was as alive to those cues and those moments as it should have been. And then, Taylor, there's there's the mental side of this for me. The U.S. come out of the gates and they weather the initial storm, as we mentioned earlier. They get that goal and, and things are still going well even the first five or so minutes after that. And then, and then Mikel Antonio just takes the air out of the U.S.'s sails, right? It's it's a long ball forward from Andre Blake. Zimmerman wins the header. Eventually, Antonio gets back on the ball, and he scores just this rocket. And I, I think that disheartens the U.S. And I think in those kinds of moments, with the field conditions and now realizing, oh, we got to claw back and get another goal, it's it's a hard game. We're tired. I think all of those things together, Yunus Musa having strep throat, apparently, after the game we learned from Greg Berhalter, all of those things together equaled a pretty lackluster attacking performance. And some of those things are understandable. It still, though, leaves me wanting more, Taylor. Hmm. Didn't know about Musa having strep throat. That answers my question as to why he was substituted out instead of Brendan Aronson. So that makes me feel better. There's a logic there. But Joe, you're absolutely right that I think to understand the way this game went, the way I'm now going to resummarize is United States kind of rides the opening 10 minutes, then they get that goal. Things seem good. But then from nothing comes this goal from Mikel Antonio and watching it again, watching it a few different times, it is Walker Zimmerman doing what we wanted him to do, which is stepping out and winning the 50-50, which he does off of an Andre Blake long ball. But what happens is that Zimmerman then drops back into that back four to make sure that he's kind of got an intact back line to make sure the offside line is solid. But Mikel Antonio doesn't move, and so when the ball then is headed back to him, because the 50-50 is won by Zimmerman, but the second ball is won by Jamaica, I think it was Walker who heads it right back to Antonio, now Antonio has found himself in a pretty sizable gap of space, because you have the back four that's dropped off the United States, but that midfield three has stayed tight and further up, so... For people trying to picture this, maybe the midfield three are like all within five yards of midfield on the U.S.'s side, and then the back line are probably 20 yards or 25 yards uh, further back of midfield, and there's that gap for Antonio, who's able to turn, go at the U.S. defense, albeit from kind of the left side, and Tyler Adams has to try to make a play, and I think we go back to the field conditions that... I think Adams knows he can't sort of close quickly. He can't stop really quickly, stop suddenly. He's probably going to lose his footing. And so he ends up in trying to like 
gradually it's the difference between slamming on the brakes and like with good pressure like pushing the brake down is what adams go for but he's gonna slow much more slowly and that means he's not going to be able to kind of corner quickly and that means antonio can get around him and then he unleashes that shot and i just think the united states if you're in that position of feeling like all right we've got this figured out we've got everybody where we need to be and then just as all of your sort of defenses all of the walls seem impregnable suddenly here's this like catapult and then all of a sudden things are kind of in an imbalance again it really has to hurt your confidence and it has to make you feel like, were we doing something wrong? What do we need to do to adjust this? And I think maybe if one of the things you think you have to do is better deal with Mikel Antonio and then every single time you try, he kind of throws you away, it maybe does start to hit the confidence all that more. And so I think from there, the U.S. very much in reactive mode for the rest of that half. And I kind of expected them to have this kind of second half response like we saw against Mexico. And I think... There's fatigue, Joe. I guess there's illness as well. I think there's frustration with kind of the the conditions and the ball popping up. I think a lot of the mistakes, certainly some of it is probably sharpness and players just not being in the right mindset. But it did seem to me like as the game went on and there were more divots and scratches in the pitch and turf was dug up and then the turf already wasn't that great, it seemed like the players for the most part could never be entirely confident where the ball was going to be. So even if it was coming to them, there seemed to be an expectation that it was going to pop up and they had to kind of lift their foot off the ground, which I think is why a lot of passes went underneath feet. And I think the U.S. was never able to just establish that rhythm. I think they never had 10 outfield players all feeling like, we know what we're doing, I feel confident. And I hope that makes sense to people, but we talk a lot about quicksand games and how individuals can have quicksand games, but you can definitely have a team have a quicksand game where if I'm just focused on, I don't want to make a mistake. So, okay, I've settled this ball well, now Joe's open, I'm just going to get this ball to Joe as quickly as I can because then I've done what I need to do. I'm not really thinking about, am I putting Joe in the best position? Am I playing him into space? Am I playing it to his dominant foot? I'm just trying to make sure that I don't make a mistake. And if you as an individual are trying not to make an individual mistake, you're no longer thinking about how do I prevent the team from making mistakes. And I think we started to kind of see that bleed into the U.S.'s identity as the game went on. The the end of the first half and the second half, Taylor, I think we're on the same page. Pretty poor from the U.S. Some some nice moments, 41st minute. There's this, I don't know if you caught this, Taylor. I, th- I thought it was kind of funny. There's this NFL-style route from DeAndre Yedlin because because Jamaica's <laughs> man-oriented pressure wasn't just in central midfield. They did apply it to a lot of other areas of the field, too. And so Zimmerman's on the ball on the right side, and Yedlin's trying to get free, and he runs downfield and then just comes back to the ball like he's running a curl, like he's, I don't know, Calvin Johnson circa 2012 or something for the Detroit Lions. He's he's making moves on that sideline. And there's a few of those smart plays from the U.S. They had some success pulling Jamaica's wingers out with the central midfielders that have dropped into the fullback spot. So, so Busio might drop to left back and Moose might drop to right back. Jamaica then would step their wingers forward to deal with those players. And then the fullbacks for the U.S. could draw Jamaica's fullbacks out. And so you have this space for the wingers, for the U.S.'s wingers, Aronson and Wea, to make these nice inside-out runs. There's a good one from Aronson in the 50th minute. There's a few of those moments, but the highs are, are, are way too few and far between as this game continued. The second half, I thought Taylor... Anthony Robinson was a real problem for the U.S. I didn't notice this so much on first watch. I I noticed bits and pieces, but I actually connected the dots on second watch. One of my biggest issues with the U.S. in that second 45 is they were too rushed with the ball. And and we saw glimpses of it with Zimmerman in the first half and some with Robinson. But 49th minute, A-Rob going for a home run ball to Aronson in transition doesn't work. 59th minute, A-Rob going for a home run ball to Aronson in buildup doesn't work. 77th minute, A-Rob home run ball to Christian Pulisic. Nothing comes of that either. Too much direct play from the U.S., almost an unwillingness to try and play and build through the center backs or build through Zach Steffen, which which kind of rubs me the wrong way in a game like this when Steffen doesn't come up big on the Antonio shot, and, and maybe he should have. The footwork, as Brianna Scurry pointed out in the broadcast at halftime, was a, a little slow, a little sloppy from Steffen to actually get up and, and generate enough power to jump up and stop that shot. But if you're going to have Stefan, then you want to get something out of him with the ball at his feet. And I thought generally, Taylor, he was more of a minus than a plus in possession for the U.S. in this game. So between Stefan and Robinson and Zimmerman and the general second half approach, I thought the U.S. really struggled with the ball outside of maybe one or two players for the last two thirds of this game. I honestly don't think I'll, I, I agree with you when it comes to Zimmerman, because I think his distribution 
was not great. I also don't think that is why he's in that team. I think he's no, in that team not. to win everything in the air. You got your specific prediction off of him winning everything in the air <laughs> in the first half, no less. Um, and I also think there's little things that I liked about his game. Like after the equalizer for Jamaica, when I talked about Zimmerman dropping off, literally the next time he wins a header, it goes somewhat straight up, but maybe like 10 yards out in front of him. And he pursues that and wins the second ball as well. And I did find myself wondering, like, is that him responding to, shoot, I dropped off too much, now I've got to be extra aggressive. So I liked what I saw from him on the defensive side. I'm with you that there were those moments you've talked about. There's two different moments in the first half when he, I think, thinks Wea is like checking to and then, then making a run yeah. into the channel and it just kind of rolls out for a goal kick. That wasn't great. But I think... Part of the reason why I'm not quite so down on his performance is because I'm way more down on Anthony Robinson. I share your sentiment, Joe, that I saw some tweets after the game about how he had had a really bad game. And I thought he had, like, not a good game, but I didn't think it was as bad as it was. And going back and watching, I assumed the miscontrols, the ball going under his foot that happened a couple times in the end of the game was fatigue. Nope, it happened in the 15th minute and the 18th minute. But then he also has the attempted own goal pass. He has... Uh, a a couple of overhit long balls, as you mentioned. He has a couple of underhit short passes. He tries to take people on on a couple of occasions and doesn't really do anything. I think thinks that he can just get by them with speed or maybe thinks the field conditions are poor enough that 1v1s favor him, but they didn't. And it, it did feel like he was not allowing the United States to have the kind of fluidity in the attack and the approach that they needed. And so I end up, Thinking about this game, Joe, from a broader perspective. You know what? Let's save the broader perspective for the final segment you of tease. today's show. Let's take a moment because I want to know where blame lies, basically. <laughs> but we're going to take a break to think about that one, and then we will return. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Today's episode is brought to you by our old friends, Mac Weldon. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have things both ways, like a zero-calorie cheeseburger, internet ads in March that weren't just reminders to do your taxes, a dog that never needs walking after midnight when it's cold, a Manchester United that is consistently good instead of their current scattershot approach, well, we tend to think of clothing as an either-or situation as well. People think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort. But it's possible to have it both ways. Mack Weldon makes timeless apparel with modern performance fabrics for guys who want to look and feel sharp without sacrificing comfort. From their light-as-air underwear to innovative anti-odor tees and versatile yet comfortable pants, Mack Weldon has a full range of clothes that never go out of style. I got a few things recently, including a long-sleeve polo, which I love, uh, maybe the most comfortable t-shirt, which I also love, and my new favorite sweatpants, the Ace sweatpant. It's exactly what I described above, comfort and versatile, but still stylish. It's the type of sweatpant I can wear to pick up my kids from daycare and not think, I'm now wearing sweatpants in public. The other parents will judge me. Now I just think, judge away, nerds, because you will never be this comfortable unless you're also wearing a pair, in which case, high five. Mack Weldon is not flashy. It's just classic, always in style, and made from the world's most comfortable performance materials. They're designed to fit both your style and the demands of modern life. So get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code TSS. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com, promo code TSS to get 20% off your first order. Thank you to Mack Weldon for sponsoring today's episode. All right, Joe, we are back, and I want to try to sort of get our narrative together here a little bit because we've talked about the goals, we've talked about the way the game started, and then about some ups and downs in performances, mostly downs in performances for the United States. But I'm inclined to say, first and foremost, I don't really put this on Greg Berhalter. That is not because I'm a Greg Berhalter fanboy, but because I look at the lineup, I had no problems with it. I look at the way they were trying to build and play. I don't really have a problem with it. They get a goal. It felt like, here we go. It's going to keep rolling. And then they get hit, and then they panic. And that is a thing that I feel like we have seen from the United States before. And the reason why I'm, I'm, I'm bringing this up, Joe, is because other things that you were just mentioning in there about an over-reliance on going direct, about trying to rush decisions and play forward and play it into space when it wasn't quite on, all of those things are 
components in past poor performances from the United States that then Burhalter talked about in like the show with Bobby Warshaw or in post-match press conferences about that's not what we wanted to do. The players were sort of overly focused on going long. They were trying to play out of pressure too quickly. They were trying too many risky passes. And I saw a lot of that tonight. And so where I sort of land is that I think Berhalter got his lineup right. I think he got his tactics mostly right. But I think the United States, when that equalizer happens and that sort of shock reverberates through the team, I don't think there was an individual who could sort of pick the team back up and be that leader on the pitch that was needed. And I think Greg Berhalter, for his part, wasn't able to find a way to get his players to slow down and play their game. And maybe they tried and just couldn't make it happen because of the field, because of the intensity of the way Jamaica were playing. But I end up sort of confused by how we ended up where we did with this one-to-one draw. And in some ways, with all that said, I feel almost better about it because I think there's definitely a world in which the U.S. does not come away with a point from this game. There is, right? I think I think you mentioned it earlier, right? Taylor Jamaica might be more disappointed for how this game turned out results-wise than the U.S. men's national team. I I do think there's some blame to go around. I think I share your sentiment. I'm never sure how to allocate blame for this. I, I think a lot of times I overstate how much impact a coach has on a team, but there are some some really important areas that managers impact teams in terms of lineup selection, subs, culture, tactics, all of those things are, are very real. And so I don't I don't really know how to have this conversation. The things I, I do I do point towards Burhalter is the team's general confusion, it looked like to me, with how to break through Jamaica. I, I'd like them at this point, this far into the Burhalter project, to have more ideas as a group that that likely could come, at least in some form, from the coaching staff as to how to break and create chances. And I feel like we didn't see that so much in this game. And that has, Taylor, let's not forget, creating chances has been a problem for the U.S. throughout World Cup qualifying. Defensively, the U.S. has been excellent. And they were largely excellent in this game outside of a few chances for Jamaica. Overall, though, the, the XG for Jamaica, not very high. And that bears out in the eye test as well, at least in my opinion. Defensively, the U.S. was good, but with the ball, I mean, the Canada game at home, right? Uh, Jamaica game, even at home, the, f- the first half of that game. Costa Rica, similarly, there, there were challenges there. Panama, the U.S. created almost nothing, right? There's a lot of those games now. That's what, between those games I just mentioned and this one, that's half of the games the U.S. has played in World Cup qualifying. So there, there are real challenges there that I do assign, at least to an extent, to Brother and company. But Taylor, I, I share your sentiment that some of this goes on the individuals too. And for me, it's a reminder of how young this group is, how much they still have to learn, how to adapt, how to move from a high to a low, how to move from the the, the awe of the Dos Acero game, Dos Acero game and, and how excited we were then and how excited I'm sure they were then to a game like this in Jamaica with much different conditions, much fewer fans, a, a smaller crowd, further away from home, all of those things, those are all factors. And I think those play a part here too. Yeah, that that's well said, Joe. And I want to say two things in response to that. The first thing is like when I say I have a hard time sort of blaming Greg Berhalter for this res- for this result. What I mean is that like again, the lineup, the formation, whatever, I think that was all fine. I had no issues with it. It was what I would have done. I think as an example, I did not see Jamaica man marking the three central midfielders for the United States. And I think I didn't even notice that in the first half. Joe, you did. I'm assuming Greg Berhalter did. And I'm assuming that there were instructions given for how to move out of space or how to pull midfielders with them or Jamaican players with them. And I think there were attempts to do that. And on the rewatch, I did see somebody moving and somebody else trying to find that, that pocket of space or somebody else making that overlapping run or whatever it might be. There were attempts there and there was clearly instruction there. But I think oftentimes the execution was lacking or it just didn't quite happen or... More often, they didn't want to give up possession, and so what could have been a potentially risky through ball for Brendan Aronson or a long, potentially risky diagonal for Tim Weah ended up being, I'm going to turn back and play it backwards and we're going to keep possession. But the more you do that, the slower your offense starts to operate, the slower things work, and just the more cautious you seem to be and in my perspective, the more you seem there for the taking and the the more you kind of invite Jamaica back into the game and let them get footholds and let them claw some ground back and then let them get confidence and eventually they are the dominant team. And that's where I think I'm glad you go back to the youth point, Joe, because it's a thing we talked about. Genuinely cannot remember if it was in the full review for Mexico or in one of the pre or post game shows. 
But a thing that I was talking to some people about in Cincinnati is just how young this U.S. team is. And I want to reemphasize, there are not many national teams out there that play this many young players. Maybe England will give a debut to an 18-year-old, but oftentimes that person is surrounded by people in their mid to late 20s who have 40, 50, 60, 70 caps. This U.S. team is really inexperienced and very young. Yes, they're very good. Yes, there's a ton of talent. You still have to find a way to get a lot of young dudes to come together and play cohesive collective soccer. And I think what gets missed a lot of the time in the way we talk about Burhalter and the way Twitter and the U.S. soccer media and U.S. soccer fans talk about it is forgetting that he is to some extent like everybody loves Ted Lasso and then forgets the lessons of Ted Lasso that like his job is to educate young men how to like play a game as best he can but once they're playing there's not as much he can do and and so i think it's worth remembering that burhalter is as much trying to develop young players for the future as he is get results now and so sure anthony robinson having a poor performance and maybe you substitute him at halftime so that you show him hey it's got to be better but also maybe you substitute him at halftime and you kill his confidence and he hates playing for the United States. Ask Timmy Chandler how that goes. And I think it's a really difficult line to walk for a coach of how do I balance getting the best out of my team right now so the results are ideal with how do I make sure that my team is developing, my players are bonded, my players want to keep playing, we have the camaraderie and the chemistry and atmosphere and whatever else to continue to perform. And that's where I think Burhalter has to make sacrifices and really difficult decisions that you and I never have to make. And a lot of people never have to make about it's worth getting a draw here. If I can get these dudes to see this game out without conceding another, and maybe that's something to build off of. And I just want to kind of emphasize that I think there are things he could have done differently on the day. I think that's always the coach case with any manager. I think there's better performances that could have been had by a lot of the players on the day. Some players did better than other Timothy Weah, I think Walker Zimmerman, in my opinion, But I think overall, you have to balance it with what we want long term and where we have been and where we hope to be going. And I think that's where I understand how it could have been better, but I'm not as frustrated as I think I was when it was happening in real time. I want to go back, Taylor, to to something that we've been talking about here, the youth of this team, just to be very clear I'm not saying this this youth is a bad thing. And this is not a response to you. I'm just sort of preempting what I could imagine would be some discussion around this for folks that are listening. I, I think the youth is the best part of this team. And Taylor, I suspect that you're on board with that idea, sure. right? This is the talented players really, for the most part, in this U.S. men's national team player pool right now are not 25 to 30. They're 19 or 18 to 23. Dude, right? I'll, tell you, I'll tell you right now. One, two, three, four, seven of our starters tonight were 21 or under. Yeah, yeah. Second youngest starting lineup for the U.S. men's national team. 22 or under, excuse me. Tyler Adams is 22. My bad. Yeah, yeah. No, you know, you're, you, I'll let that one slide, Taylor. Thank you. I just want to be clear. I'm not saying like, oh, if, if these guys, if Sebastian Legette and Kellen Acosta and, uh, you know, whoever else had been starting in this game, John Brooks had started instead of Chris Richards, that it would have been a totally different ball game. I'm not saying that the youth is the reason why this team lost. I just, I, I think, I, I feel the need to be clear that the youth is is a really important part of this team. And I don't think the the older guys would have gotten the job done against Mexico either. So it's, it's a hard balance to, to find, right, Taylor? Getting those guys involved and getting them experienced while also still understanding that they're not going to be perfect and that there are going to be flaws along the way. Because you have all of those things, and then you have Yunus Musa, who's a player we haven't talked about a whole lot yet, other than for me saying that he had strep throat, apparently, according to Berhalter. I-, I thought Musa on second watch was was really good, Taylor. He had some sloppy turnovers in the first half, just like a lot of other folks did. Not perfect. But man, I didn't realize before the U.S. made that first pair of subs, which was Pulisic and Acosta on for what was that, Wea and and, uh, and Musa? I didn't realize how good Musa had been in the few minutes before that, and really in in large stretches of this game, twice in the five minutes before he goes out, the 60th minute and the 65th minute, Musa gets on the ball and does exactly what I talked about in the pregame show. He gets on the ball, does a little dribble drive action, some Musa maneuvering, and, and breaks into a dangerous attacking spot. The second one I'm detailing here, 65th minute, he does his dribble thing and then finds Tim Weah, slips a, a clever ball into Tim Weah. You could see just how much talent was on the field. There was just disconnects from from one player to the next player. And I think that that boils down to all the different factors that we've talked about. 
For sure. And I, and I guess then I will clarify to say that, like, yeah, I w- it never even occurred to me that, like, veteran players could have gotten the job done because that I don't think that that's even true. Right. What what I mean is that I think when you have even Anthony Robinson, who's like 25 years old or 24, like if he makes the mistake of being overly direct in trying to play forward a few many too many times in a game, I think if you have a younger player a manager has to consider that not in letting them off the hook, but in the way that they deal with them. And if you scream and holler at a 21 year old for making the wrong mistake and then you are making too many mistakes and you pull them off and you punish them for it, you kill that player's confidence and they are professionals. They're adults. Don't get me wrong. They're used to getting yelled at for making mistakes, but there's a big difference between Pep yelling at you and Jose Mourinho yelling at you. (laughs) And that's what I'm trying to get at is that, I think that's a thing that has to be kept in mind because I look at some of those mistakes and as I said, they're mistakes we've seen this team make before and that is troubling. You want to see those same mistakes not be made because then that shows progress. It shows that the players are developing and learning and not making the same fundamental errors that they made previously and when they sometimes do, I think there can be a reactionary move of these guys just aren't good enough. I'm not seeing it from him. He's not getting the job done and I think too often there is – or. Yeah, basically, too readily do we dismiss the idea that it's a young player who's going to have an off game and they're going to revert to what comes naturally to them. And it's really hard for a manager on the sidelines who can't pull them over or call a timeout to be like, hey, stop doing that. Reset your brain. And so you've kind of got to let them try to figure it out as best they can and then hope with some instruction the next time around they don't make those same mistakes. So they make fewer of those same mistakes. And I think for the most part, I do feel like we see that progress from Greg Berhalter and the U.S. men's national team. I think there are players that people don't like who maybe get called in too often or don't contribute as much as others. And there are reasons to be frustrated with Greg Berhalter. I I think we still see enough progress in this team overall. It's not the result I had hoped for. I would have loved six points. But as I said previously, Joe, if the results were reversed and we got four points after getting a draw with Mexico and a win against Jamaica, I think lots of people would have been very happy. I think that Mexico game raises expectations and maybe this Jamaica game was a reminder that we're not there yet and there's got to continue to be progress and hard work on and off the pitch to get us to the World Cup and then hopefully get us out of our group. Well, Taylor, I I think I know a solution for this. It's just to have the U.S. play Mexico and Cincinnati for every other game (laughs) Uh, of the Ocho and then I think the U.S. would, would be right there. There we go. We solved it right there. Uh, <laughs> Joe, forgive my, my long monologuing, but I think with these types of games, as I said in the very beginning, we can go through and talk about individual mistakes and what went wrong here and why didn't this work. But I think we've sort of been here before in terms of a performance that was okay but not great. Yep. And rather than rehash a lot of it, I would rather look at like what can we learn from this. And I think there are things that we can learn aside from it's still a young team that we're going to have some setbacks and we've got to sort of get behind them as best we can. I think the crowd in Cincinnati did a great job of that. When things got tough, when the U.S. started getting knocked around, the crowd responded and picked them up. And I think Weston McKinney is a very good figure for the U.S. in picking up his teammates. He is the first one to go over whenever there's maybe a foul that's too hard or a little bit of uh, ruckus off the ball. He will wait in there. And I think the U.S. sort of lacked that fiery disposition on the evening. So that's something I feel like we learned. I think we learned once again that Timothy Weah can create something from nothing and is a really important part of this team. I think I learned that Ricardo Pepe, though he didn't score goals in this game, also does a lot of good work off the ball to try to hold it up, to try to flick it on, but then also to combine well. Uh, The one that you mentioned, Joe, that ended with Weah crossing it for Pepe to shoot, it's a sort of long-form one-two because it's a ball into the feet of Pepe, and he does that sort of one-touch reverse flick over his shoulder into the channel for Weah to run onto. Then he loops around, recycles his run, and is there for the shot. The shot is blocked. Brendan Aronson gets the rebound, and that shot is saved. But those moments from Ricardo Pepe, I like to see the the progress, the development of those players. So he doesn't score, but it's still good. And I think we learn some things, and I think we learn some positives, and we learn some negatives that we don't want to see. Uh, so I feel like there are still things to take away from this game that are positive, but in some ways, to me, the negatives are also sort of positive. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's a balance, right? It has to be a balance in how we talk about this game and in this window, right, Taylor, this this whole November window. You mentioned Tim Weah there. I think another thing we learned about Weah, or maybe we learned about Burhalter, I guess, is that he values Tim Weah 
more than I initially anticipated coming into this window, right? Tim Weah hops over Polyriola in the depth chart at that right winger spot, starting both of these games after only starting the Costa Rica game to close out October because Paul Ariola picked up a little bit of a knock. And some of that could be Baralter thinking Ariola's skill set fits better in one game versus the next game. I don't I don't really buy that, or if that is his reasoning, I don't think it's very good reasoning. I think Tim Way is just a better player and, and does what Ariola does, at least to a degree, and then brings a whole lot of other stuff along with it. So we learned about uh, about Baralter's opinion of Tim Weah, and we learned about Zimmerman. I, I know I was harsh on him with the ball. I was hard on him with the ball. And I, I stand by those things, but defensively, man, he is a key piece of this back line. Not even called up in November, Taylor. And now in October, excuse me, not even called up in October, then gets called into that group. And now I, I can't really imagine the US having played these two games without Walker Zimmerman. So he's been a huge piece of this puzzle. And then Musa as well. Should have already been a guaranteed star guaranteed starter. Didn't seem like he actually was, but now he he's gotta be. So there's 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 things we learned about this game and about this team, growing points that we still need to see from them, and also things we learned about players and, and Berhalder's estimation of those players. All right, Joe. I want to do a thought experiment for a moment. I've talked plenty, so I'm just gonna ask you some questions. If we're building our ideal Starting 11. And I'm going to say it's six months from now and everybody has sort of – everybody is healthy and everybody has continued to improve. Everybody's gotten a little bit better or a lot bit better. Nobody's had massive setbacks or anything like that. Who are you – I feel like we can say it's Zach Steffen or Matt Turner in goal. Is that fair to say? Yeah, one of the two. All right, so we've got that much. What about your center backs? If you're talking about your starting center back pair. Oh, man. It's it's – gotta be Robinson and Zimmerman Taylor uh, there's some really? issues there with the ball All but right. I have a hard time picturing a center back pairing that I'd be more comfortable with than those two and then if you were going to look at like your two obvious second choice candidates who would those be for center back uh Richards and Brooks yeah I, I think Brooks should have been in this camp and I think he could have made a difference in this game with his ball playing ability and his ability to organize and break lines in possession we'll never know that for sure but but Brooks and Richards for me are the next two and then what about right back Dest. Dest starter and then Yedlin behind him. I, I don't think Yedlin was as good in this game as he was against Mexico. Uh, that that assist that Anthony Robinson has for Bobby Reed. Uh, I think that play could have been completely eliminated if DeAndre Yedlin actually steps to the ball instead of hesitating and falling back into his shape and then allowing the cross in. So there's a few of those moments with and without the ball that that I hesitate to say Yedlin so confidently. But still, based off of a lot of what he showed tonight and what he showed against Mexico, he's he's the number two behind Dest for me right now. Yep, I'm with you, and the fact that Reggie Cannon was in camp and didn't play tells me that DeAndre Yedlin is ahead of him right now. Maybe Joe Scali takes over, but that's one that we'll keep an eye on. But again, exciting that we're talking about the battle for the second choice right back. What about left back? Uh, Anthony Robinson, I would say neither one of us loved what we saw from him uh, on the evening. I don't think it was enough for me to think he shouldn't be starting. Joe, what about you? Yeah, and and that's, for me, Robinson has always been sort of just the guy who's the best of the options that we're still not all that confident about. He has had some good moments over the last, you know, two World Cup qualifying windows down in this one and it was maybe just okay against Mexico, but he's still got to be the starter at that spot. And then I'd like to bring, if we're building a roster, I'd like to bring Scally as this flex fullback. He and Desk can both play on on either side. And I think that brings a lot of value if if we're trying to use these roster stats. Rosper, ro- Hmm. I know what you meant. <laughs> okay. Yeah, you got it. You got and it. And then it's actually not that late. It's eight o'clock, folks. I'm <laughs> I think we both agree that it's it's the MMA midfield. It's Tyler Adams. It's Eunice Musa. It's Weston McKinney. Yes. Yeah. For sure. What about in terms of your depth there? Let's skip the number six depth because I'm not sure either <laughs> one of us has an answer for that one right now. Other than I think it's Kellen Acosta and then Weston McKinney is more defensive. Uh, but I think would you agree with me that Jean-Luc Busio remains a viable? Uh, deputy if one of Eunice Moose or Weston McKinney can't go? Yes, Busio is still in that conversation for me. And and another point I was going to criticize Baralta for earlier is not bringing Luca De La Torre into this camp. We talked about it when we discussed the roster when it first dropped. What was that? A couple weeks ago now. But I, I think if you take Musa off in this game, maybe you don't bring on Acosta. Maybe you bring on De La Torre if, if he's with you. He brings a lot of that same silky smooth on the ball quality that Musa has, and he could have helped create some chances for the U.S. So I, I don't think Baralter sees it this way, but I would have De La Torre and Busio as my two backup number eights. There we go. And then front three uh, of, I would guess, Christian Pulisic is on one side and Gio Reyna is on the other. 
Giorena for sure. Taylor, I'm I'm having some hesitations about Christian Pulisic right now, man. He's he's dangerous in the way that he always is, getting on the ball, causing problems on the dribble, but he doesn't he he hasn't shown an inclination to do much else recently for the national team. He's he's static until he gets the ball. He wasn't really moving to help Anthony Robinson much at all in this game. That's been true of him in, in past appearances with the national team as well. I think you still have to start him on the left and Gio on the right, but I I'm not married to that idea, I'll put it that way. If Brendan Aronson had had a significantly better game tonight, and I think this was one of the poorest games I've seen from him for club or country, uh, would you feel more confident about saying that Aronson could challenge Christian Pulisic? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I don't feel, and that's part of the problem, Taylor, and you're hitting the nail on the head right there. I don't feel that confident in Aronson's ability to produce in the attack. He brings tons of defensive energy. We know that right now. Really, the pairing I'd be more interested in seeing is Weah on the right and Gio on the left. I think those guys could do some real damage. You bring Pulisic off the bench for 30 minutes, like like we saw in both of these last two games. That, I feel like, could be a lot of fun. And then at number nine, again, didn't score, but I think we're both okay with Ricardo Pepe as that option because... He's done a good enough job thus far, hasn't had a massive downturn in form, and there are not a ton of other options. Pepe and, and then Zardes, if he's healthy in the six months in the future fictional scenario. I, I would love to see Zardes back. I think he brings, he, he's a solid presence. He moves really well in the box. And maybe you even bring Jesus Ferreira as a little bit of depth in, in that wild card number nine option. And I think the reason why I wanted to do this thought experiment, I, I'm not thinking it, it is the reason why I wanted to do it, was <laughs> okay. to basically to look at it again and say, uh, I don't know what is happening in the Mexico-Canada game, but let's say Mexico wins that game. Then the U.S. is second in the table, but still in an automatic spot to qualify for the World Cup. And the issues we're talking about, the major concerns we have are, what happens if our second string, number nine, doesn't isn't able to go or doesn't improve? Who should be our second string uh, or like midfielder, one of our midfielders? How do we deal with Tyler Adams is another one if Tyler Adams can't go. Uh, Maybe who's our backup left back? Who's the third string goalkeeper? But overall, it feels like we have a very strong idea of our best team and how we want to play and how we can play. And it's about making sure that everybody continues to kind of rise to the occasion, that we do start to get more of that consistency. And already I feel like we're having losses turn to draws. And then ideally, as we go, draws turn to wins and wins turn to comprehensive wins. But I think I guess where I end up is that at this point in qualifying, It's been rocky, it's been up and down, but I feel like we're in a good position and we have a very good idea of the depth of the pool. And we haven't even mentioned some of the ever-present names or some of the players that could still break through or still be in contention or come back from injury. And so it feels like the U.S. is in a better position than it sometimes actually feels. Yes, yes, Taylor, I 100% am with you on that. The U.S. is still in a good position to qualify. I'm confident in their ability to qualify. The top four in CONCACAF right now is is pretty tight, so I still have some nerves surrounding this team. I think that's that's fair. It's going to be Canada, the U.S., Mexico, Panama, all in that top four. Depending on how results go tonight, that order could look a little bit different. But it's a strong position for the U.S. to be in. Is there a lot of room for error right now? Maybe maybe not, given how close Panama is. But the top four is looking almost guaranteed for the U.S. right now. So then it's just about just about not being last in that top four and, and getting that automatic spot, and not having to go through a playoff. But generally speaking, this team's in a fine spot. The result tonight wasn't ideal. It wasn't perfect. We talked about a lot of the reasons for that and a lot of what went wrong. But this guy is not falling. It's not even close to falling right now. Overall, this should not totally overshadow just how epic Dos Acero was and, and the glimpse of the ceiling <laughs> that we saw for this team. Uh, no arguments from me, my friend. Uh, Joe, can you give me a reminder of where we are in the table? Yes. Yeah, so right now, as we're recording live, and this will look different for folks as they're listening to it, but if, if results hold... Canada's up one nothing right now at halftime against Mexico. That would put them in first on 16 points, USA in second on 15, Mexico on 14, and Panama in fourth on 14. So Canada, USA, Mexico, Panama, and then the bottom four, Costa Rica, Jamaica, El Salvador, Honduras, all at least five points back of Panama in fourth. And through how many games? That's through eight games at the end of the night. So six more still to go. And we will have uh, more games, obviously, because we're the Ocho, not the Hex. But I, I will point out that uh, last round of qualifying through 10 games, the U.S. had 12 points. So and was, I think, second bottom of the standings. So yikes. Yeah, I think so often <laughs> the fair to qualify 
shades our perception of this team. If we had qualified for 2018, I do feel like we're having that same old conversation about like, ah, the Hex is the Hex, even though now it's the Ocho, but they're going to be fine. We'll we'll find our way through. I think that 2018 failure looms so large and we're so afraid of it ever happening again. Rightfully so. Let me emphasize, I don't ever want to not qualify for a World Cup again. But I think that can lead in my mind to worrying too much about what could happen versus focusing on what is happening, which is that we have a strong team that could be better, but is very young and I believe will get better. And I think though we have this result tonight that doesn't make us particularly happy, we have Dos Acero and other results that make us much, much happier, Joe Lowry. Amen to that, Taylor. Let's just all continue to bask in the glory of Dos Acero and sort of just forget that this one happened and just be happy with the point. And with that said, if things go wrong, the next round of qualifying, if there's a loss <laughs> and a draw to start, I am not going to be nearly as pleasant uh, or as calm. But I do feel like we're trending in the right direction. I do feel like, on the whole, it was basically a uh, it was bad conditions, bad field, bad result is kind of what I'm going to go with. It's a very hot day. You could see Tyler Adams getting two different like sponge baths with ice water at different points in this game. And I think the United States basically ended up in a physical battle that they did not win, nor should they maybe have been in the first place. And I think my hope would be that uh, if that were to happen again, they end up backing themselves and playing the way they, we know they can, and then they get the results. Uh, if they do, we'll be here to talk about it. If they don't, we'll be here to talk about it. Joe, we've bounced around on this one, and I am okay with it because I don't want to spend a bunch of time talking about misplaced passes and what could have happened and why this didn't work. Instead, I just want to say, not great, but okay, and now let's do better in the future. Yep. Could not have said that better myself, Taylor. <laughs> well, and Joe, uh, anything else uh, to mention to bring up before we call this one closed? Eunice Musa for president. That's no it. That's arguments here. I think he's got a few more years before he meets that age requirement. Eh, <laughs> but there's time. He needs that political experience. He can gain that along the way. And You're I look right. forward to voting for him in a few years. For now, Joe Lowry, thank you for that suggestion and everything else from this evening. You got it, Taylor. Thank you, man. Listeners, thank you all so much for listening. We'll talk to you all again very soon.